You will not kill me. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here to talk about the Arnoldless question mark Terminator Salvation. You can just scratch that question mark. Arnold is clearly in this movie. Is he though? <laughs> well, through, the, through studio magic he appears. Magic or sorcery? <laughs> we'll get to that a little bit later, but... You know, Terminator Salvation is an interesting movie in that this was the first time Hollywood said, you know what, we can't keep repeating the formula. We've done that three times now. People turned out, but they aren't going to turn out forever. We've got to expand the world of Terminator. And fans had always, you know, desperately pleaded for a Future Wars movie. For years, ever since Terminator 1 and 2, you know, blew up, they were like, we want a Future War movie. Hollywood finally listened to him. Well, you think about just how impactful those uh, future scenes were in the Terminator and uh, Terminator Two. Yeah, uh, I'm trying. I'm, I'm scraping my brain pan here, but I don't think there was any in Terminator Three. Was there? I think there might have been. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a shame I can't recall because I've seen that movie <laughs> fairly recently. There had to be, right? They have to have one in there, <laughs> one little flashback. I guess my question for you, though, just off the top, is. Were you someone who desperately wanted to see a future war movie? Absolutely, I did. Did you? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I remember the the Terminator. Those scenes were just so dark. And then uh, the we talked about it at length on our Terminator Two episode. Just the the opening scene of the hunter killers uh, coming down and blasting away. You see the <laughs> desperate situation that the resistance finds itself in, and you think. Uh, Oh man, that I absolutely want to see that. I want to see an army of uh, endoskeletons with glowing red eyes cruising around, crushing skulls, and uh, just laying waste. I don't know if you ever played the Terminator video games, but those which, all... which one? I played the Terminator Two arcade game. That, yeah, that's the one I'm thinking okay, of. Okay. Yeah. Uh, likewise, took place I think almost entirely, if not all the way entirely in uh in the future that's the one where you have the uzi that you're actually holding <laughs> yeah, right and you're gunning, right. gunning down uh, endoskeletons yeah yeah yeah. And, that, that game was great and so uh so long story long i guess the, <laughs> uh yeah i did want to see this movie and i was excited when this movie was coming out how about you did you want to see a future war movie i think i did but i was also a little hesitant because i think one of the things that makes the first two terminators so entertaining is they have a really good emotional mix, you know, they're really tense, they're really exciting, they're scary, but they also have like funny moments or at least like heartfelt moments to them that have a certain like human warmth to them. Like they, that's always what uh, James Cameron brings this stuff. We talked about James Cameron in our last full episode. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I could never really wrap my head around if you were to do this future war movie how it would be anything other than depressing because these scenes that we get these flashbacks to in those first two are incredibly well designed but boy do they look bleak and depressing and so i always kind of wondered would this be crushing stretched out to two hours would you just be like well what's the point well and and now you know cam so yeah yeah so how do you feel about it well we'll get to you know how i feel about it now a little bit later but at the time 
Um, when I saw this movie, I saw it early. I saw it before any of the reviews were out or anything. I was reviewing movies for my university paper, and I got into a critic screening of this film. And I was super excited, like really, really excited. More excited for this than I was for Terminator 3, for sure. And um, the trailers, I remember, that were scored to the Nine Inch Nails song, The Day the Whole World Went Away, were incredible. Like, this movie had phenomenal marketing. It really did sell this whole future war in a brilliant way. And even though I wasn't a big fan of McG, you know, the Charlie Angels movies were okay, but they weren't the sort of thing I was looking for in the resume of someone doing Terminator. Um... I went to this movie full of excitement, and I remember walking out and kind of being like, huh, like I didn't hate it. I, I didn't walk out like angry. I was just like, that felt kind of flat. Like it didn't really do a lot for me. And, you know, I went home, I wrote my review, and then I re remember seeing the reviews start to roll in, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes and stuff like that, Metacritic, and they were kind of all along the same line. They were like, well... It has some, you know, really great technical moments, but it's a little flat. So that was kind of my feeling then. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I was in the same boat that you were in. Uh, I was super excited about the marketing of this movie. Uh, I, I think I went to go see it on uh, on opening night. And I came out, and I'm, I'm a little bit in the same boat as you, but I'm not going to go full Titanic, where... Uh, <laughs> where I came out, and I thought that there was a lot of parts where this movie could have been improved um i was actually expecting more arnold schwarzenegger maybe i didn't get the memo or something like that right yeah uh but i thought the movie looked pretty good i thought the sets were good i thought the action was good but at the same time i thought the the story was a little ho-hum and it was it was a little bit bleak like there wasn't a lot of uh fun in the movie or humor in the movie so i came out thinking you know that was a good movie. I'm glad it wasn't more than two hours. Right. Yeah. And so, and and since that time, I actually haven't seen it since then. No, I've just me kinda, neither. I've just kind of, it's been in my mind. There were, there definitely were some scenes that I remembered, but it's been sitting there just kind of waiting for an opportunity to jump back out into, into my uh, eyeballs there. Right. And, you know, we really weren't alone. This movie didn't exactly have the best word of mouth at the box office. The thing was, it went in as a heavy hitter because people that summer were actually kind of excited for this movie because the marketing had been so effective. That's right. And the movie was, you know, pretty high budgeted. It cost $200 million and domestic it made $125 million. So, you know, domestically it was not very well received and that's quite a bit below Terminator 3. Uh, Fornit did 246 for a total of 371. Which is, like, pretty good. That's pretty good. But, like, in the current paradigm of Hollywood, they say $400 million is the line you need to cross to even be considered for a sequel. Like, Pacific Rim, I remember they were really watching the numbers, and once it crossed four hundred, they said, okay, we're going to try for Pacific Rim 2. And they made Pacific Rim 2 and made less than $400 million. <laughs> <laughs> But that's generally the line. You know, like, Solo, the Star Wars spinoff grossed under 400 and it killed the star wars universe <laughs> the extended you know sort of spin-off universe well we won't say that one's dead yet not yet but it sure seems like it um but yeah you know terminator 3 cost the same same amount 200 million uh but it brought in 433 worldwide so it was definitely a step down from terminator 3 but i would even argue this one was probably more eagerly anticipated than terminator 3 oh i don't know about that you don't think so 
No, I mean Terminator Three hyped pretty pretty heavily the return of Arnold. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was a direct sequel to possibly the greatest action movie all of all time. That's a fair point. Yeah, and and uh, I remember when Terminator Three was coming out, people were not just excited to go see it, but they were genuinely talking about it as as a bit of an event. Right, right. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so when you look at the top ten that year, it's a pretty strong year in terms of at least big grocers and so number one you have james cameron's avatar i mean <laughs> that's pretty pretty much a juggernaut uh, well i guess that's why he he didn't have time to direct this one yes number two is transformers revenge of the fallen a terrible movie that grossed an insane amount of money now you talk about um how box office drives sequels yeah and Transformers is uh, a case in point of that. Yes, I, and actually, it would Transformers. The whole series was it was the movie series that uh, really made me lose faith in everything. <laughs> yeah, basically in in box office audiences because <laughs> I went to see the first one. Yeah, and I was like, this is really bad. It made like a jillion dollars. Yeah, I know. I hated the first one too. But everyone is you know to this day says. Well, the first one was pretty good. And well, I'm like, no, it wasn't. You know, I went to see the second one. It was even it was even more incomprehensible than the first one. Yeah. And uh, and then and it made a jillion dollars. And then they just kept making a jillion dollars forever. So yeah, until uh, the until the last night, which was a big drop off, and seemed to actually kill them. You know, at least for a little bit. They made Bumblebee, but we'll see beyond that. Yeah. So anyways, we've only made a couple items down yeah, yeah. Our, our box office list. Number here. three, and this is a trend you'll see on every top ten list for, you know, around a eight, nine year period. You've got a Harry Potter movie. Yeah. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. That was a really good one. Harry Potter and the License to Print Money. <laughs> Number four, you had Twilight Saga New Moon, which was like the young adult version of Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, an equally terrible sequel that made an insane amount of money. I've yet to see a Twilight movie. I should give it a chance one of these days. You know what? There's a couple of them that you can kind of sit through and... <laughs> I'm going to put that on your tombstone. <laughs> you can Sat through Twilight. You can sit through them. I'll say that. They're not good, but you can sit through them. New Moon is not one of them. Uh, number five was Up, the Pixar movie, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Number six, you had The Hangover, which was a big surprise smash that summer. Um, number seven was J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, which I really love. Uh, number eight was the Sandra Bullock surprise hit The Blind Side. Number nine was Alvin and the Chipmunks' The Squeakle. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? That was a top ten? That was a number nine. That's unbelievable. The Squeakle beat <laughs> Salvation. <laughs> Well, obviously, it'd be a lot of things. I can't yeah. believe that was number nine. Number ten was Sherlock Holmes, the first Robert Downey Jr. movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Iron Man. <laughs> Iron Man, London Detective. Yeah. But um, uh, Terminator Salvation came in at number 23. So quite a ways down the list. It was right between Ron Howard's Angels and Demons... Right. Uh, the uh, you know the Robert Langdon film you know the sequel or prequel the book was the book was a prequel but the movie was a sequel to Da Vinci the, Code yeah Da Vinci Code that's right and then uh, Terminator was one spot ahead of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs which is a pretty fun movie um, a couple of the other things that did better than Terminator you know known properties that brought in more people with pretty lousy movies 
You had X-Men Origins Wolverine at number 13. Oh, but come on. That was a huge franchise at that point. It was, but it was awful. Like, was X-Men a, Wolverine is horrendous. It was a horrible movie. I guess there's a little bit of a tie-in, because that was the first time we'd seen Deadpool on screen. Right. And uh, Tim Miller, who ultimately did the Deadpool movie, is directing Terminator Dark Fate. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, number 14, you had Night at the Museum, Battle at the Smithsonian. You know, I've never seen any Night of the Museum movies, but I, I I hear they're kind of fun. The first one's okay. The first one's kind of fun. The second one is really bad. Uh, at number 18, you had G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra. I went to see that with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the movie where I learned that uh, ice sinks, apparently. <laughs> that movie's really bad, but I did enjoy watching it. It's, yeah, it was one of the most fun I think I had in a movie that year. And a couple other noteworthy ones on the list. At number 20, you had the Liam Neeson movie Taken. Which came out of nowhere. The studio had thought they were going to put it straight to video, but it blew up overseas. So they released it here and it turned into an action classic for that period. Yeah. And then at number 27, you had Neil Blomkamp's District 9. Which I think is a really interesting movie in that, you know, fairly small budgeted sci-fi spectacle that really blew up kind of like The Terminator. Yeah, that's right. It's a spectacular movie. And the only other one I'll mention is further down the list at number 49, you had Race to Witch Mountain, which was the Dwayne Johnson you know, threequel, I think, to the uh, Disney property, the Witch Mountain series, which, again, you know, I only mention this because Dwayne Johnson is very much following in the footsteps of Arnold. At this point, he was definitely struggling, though. He wasn't quite the superstar he is now. Yeah, that's a good point, Cam. Um, so, you know, you look at it, so 23... Uh, I mean, anything in the top 30, I think, isn't bad. And anytime you're making... Uh, when you cost $200 million, you're not aiming for number 23. Oh, come on. I mean, I don't care what Hollywood says. Anytime you make something uh, that approaches $400 million in box office, in my mind, that's a, a pretty well-received movie. Or at least sure. a, a pretty well-attended movie. But, you know, ultimately, this movie was supposed to be the first in a Future War trilogy it wound up just being a one standalone movie, and I think became no more notorious for the behind-the-scenes drama than the actual movie itself. Yeah, there was certainly some of that, there, and notoriously so. I mean, this, along with um, you know, an alleged assault charge against his mother, which I think was ultimately dropped as as not having any evidence, um, was kind of what maligned the public against Christian Bale for a little bit. Yeah, and he was just coming off The Dark Knight. Like, that was one year earlier. So, like, there was no bigger time for Christian Bale than this moment. And I remember reading some of these stories and hearing about them online and being like, uh-oh, <laughs> being a little nervous. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading that, but I didn't put a lot of stock into it. I mean, it, it sounded like... A, a guy kind of, you know, having a bit of a hissy fit and a, getting a shouting match in a fairly high-stress working environment. He came out pretty quickly afterwards and apologized for it. Him and the the guy that he was yelling at, who was apparently a, a crewman who was moving around on set while he was trying to film uh, an intense scene of some kind. Yeah, he was, like, walking in front of the, uh, like, his eye line while he was trying to act, and he flipped out. And if you listen to the audio of that, that famous audio of Christian Bale yelling at this guy on the set, you know, he's referring to the director, McGee, uh, as well. Like, he's... Christian Bale, let's just say, at the end of the day, was not happy with the way the set was run. Yeah, I mean, Christian Bale is, you know... Fairly well known as a pretty serious method actor. He gets pretty into his roles. You look at some of the stuff he's done, like The Machinist 
and then I mean even the Dark Knight uh, or American Psycho. Yeah. Uh, you know these these films that he kind of has gone right into. I I got to imagine he was trying to do the same thing here with with John Connor and ultimately he lost it he shouldn't have done it you listen to it he's clearly like out of line yeah um but you know he came out he apologized afterwards I, I don't and we that... haven't heard stories about that sort of behavior since no so I, I genuinely think this was a somewhat terrible set and I don't know how much is even to blame necessarily on you know McGee or the, the other people associated with the crew this was a movie that was being put together during the writer's strike, much less a lot of other movies at this point in time, and a lot of them were suffering on-set issues with scripts that weren't finished, and that sort of thing can cause a lot of tension with actors who don't know what their motivation is in a scene, a crew that's a little bit confused as to what they're doing, and, you know, I don't know how much of that really fed into it, because this movie also actually ran into issues where the twist in the ending had to be completely reshot because it leaked... Uh, Ain't It Cool News, the now disgraced website of Harry Knowles, um, published the ending and everyone got furious because they hated the twist so much. So the studio freaked out and reshot the whole ending as well. So like this movie really did have kind of a, it's not one of those legendary nightmare productions by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think it was a particularly easygoing one. Yeah, well, anytime you see a movie that involves actors standing at some point in the film in water... Yeah, I always think that at some point somebody lost their temper there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those, those always seem to be the movies that have problems, and if there's water involved, uh, odds are you got to throw another fifty million dollars and and have a crewman or two break down and cry. You're right. Yeah, Jaws, Waterworld, Titanic, The Abyss. Yeah, no, it's very accurate. Now, Tony, before we delve into our thoughts this time, what's this movie about? Well, Cam, there's really two intertwined stories going on in this movie. One. You've got Sam Worthington playing Marcus Wright, who's a convicted murderer who signs his body over to science, uh, only to wake up in a future much different than the one he imagined. <laughs> the scary future of 2018. That's right. Uh, and you got uh, Christian Bale playing John Connor, who we know from the, the first several Terminator movies, who is the... Um, part-time prophet, part-time leader of the resistance, uh, who's um, fighting the machines in a future gone awry. Right. Now, Tony, you know, a decade removed from this movie, almost a decade to this day, really. We're very close to when this movie came out uh, in 2009. What is your thoughts this time around? You know, I think they're more favorable. Are Uh, they? Okay. Yeah, you know, I went into this movie, and on Arnie Gen, we have the opportunity to take a look at all different kinds of movies within the very narrow bubble of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Right. But, but you know, we go from Terminator 2 to the Jane Mansfield story. Uh, we go from uh, Predator to Twins. And uh, and so we've, we've actually seen a fair number of different movies. And and when we do that, sometimes I'm excited, you know, and and justifiably so. I was excited to watch Terminator 2 again, and, and that's sure. always a blast. Sometimes we fake excitement on the podcast. <laughs> Other times I'm I'm less excited. I'm like, oh man, this is going to be a real slog. Sure. And sometimes that ends up being the case. Uh, other times not. I think about when we did The Expendables. I was like, yeah, this movie's actually a lot of fun. Yeah, that one really won me over too. And I think that's that's the category that this movie's in. I, was, I went into this, I was like, yeah. You know, it'll be good to watch it again. I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I, I've come out of it now. We, we 
just finished watching it a little while ago, and I really had a good time watching this. It was I thought it was a pretty entertaining movie. Okay. H- how about you? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely felt more favorable in the first uh, half of this movie, or at least the first act, where I was seeing some really dynamic action set pieces. I was actually impressed going... Was I wrong? Like, McGee can shoot action far better than I remembered. You know, there's a one-take helicopter crash that's really effective. Yeah. There's a scene where it's like a big, towering Terminator chasing them. And I was like, this is really cool. Like, it's really scary. It reminded me a lot of the Spielberg War of the Worlds. It had similar sound effects going on. It had the people getting, you know, trapped inside, kind of like the tripods did. Yep. And I was like, this is some really scary dystopian action. Uh, and it's really effective. There's a truck chase where they're being chased by motorbikes that I thought, wow, like this is really well filmed. And in terms of its like technology, in terms of its practical effects, this was Stan Winston's final film. Um, I think this movie is actually really strong. I, I walked out very much impressed with what McGee brought to it, at least in terms of the visuals that weren't kind of muddied by night shooting. There's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of muddy night stuff that I'm not a big fan of. But overall, like I thought. Visually, the movie's more impressive than I remembered. Um, For me, I think the problem comes, like, this is a movie that I don't feel like it's a bad movie. I think it's good in parts. I think it's quite strong in parts. You know, I think, you know, Anton Yelchin is really compelling as Kyle Reese. I think he's a good casting choice. Um, But I just feel like the story kind of gets muddied down at a certain point, and I think it's missing something that is what exactly makes the three previous Terminator movies maybe better. It, which is that the human story at the heart of the movies is just really compelling. Whereas, like, this one, it never finds it. I think, you know, Christian Bale may be the most depressing hero to follow in a movie that I can even remember. And Sam Worthington, not exactly a charisma bomb. And I think that character, I'm looking forward to delving more into that character with you. But, I mean, he feels like kind of like the first draft of something that was going to be more interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I remember after this movie was released, there's a lot of comments uh, of, you know, the 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 resistance is fighting Skynet and it's it's led by Batman. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of moments that are the equivalent of the, where is he? Where is he? I think he literally says, where is he? Yeah. At some point in yeah. the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's what we do that defines us. Yeah, so I, I think at this point it's probably a, a good time for us to jump into the movie itself. So I'll uh, I'll give my uh, my normal warning to the listeners out there, which is uh, we are going to be going through the entire movie. This is a movie that does have some twists, and it is one that's worth watching. Uh, so if you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it in a while, please uh, push pause go home and uh, and throw it on your screen and, and take a look and come back to us. Uh, or if you want us to just ruin the movie for you, and <laughs> <laughs> we're happy to do that too and, and keep listening. If you're trying to just catch up in time for Dark Fate, but only have one hour to spare, I guess this podcast will do. Yeah, in fact, push, hit, instead of hitting pause, push stop and go watch the, watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Tony, what were some things that jumped out to you this time more favorably that you know, maybe you thought were more interesting than you'd given them credit for in the past. Well, I think it's similar to what you said, Cam. I th- I actually really didn't give enough credit where credit was due to Mick G as a director, especially as a director of action and uh, of this kind of dystopian future. And you can see his background, I guess, as a as a music video director. Yeah. Um, 
but a lot of the scenes that he has just move with a real kinetic kind of energy that I had totally forgotten about uh, when I left the theater last time. And I remember he was really slagged a lot leading up to the movie. You know, obviously, hardcore fans are going, how are we going from James Cameron to McGee? You know, I mean, yes, we had Jonathan Mostow, but, you know, it, nonetheless, like, McGee was someone who was not held in high regard. And I don't know how much of that is just people hated the Charlie's Angels movies, even though they did exactly what they were supposed to. I don't really know. Like, I think Mick G actually has a lot of good visuals in those movies, regardless of what you think of them. They're a little wire fooey. They are, for sure, which is very year 2000. Yeah, for sure. But I think that was part of the reason people didn't know what to expect. Ultimately, Mick G is a journeyman director. You look at his filmography, you know, he's done romantic comedies like This Means War. He's done, he did a football movie. I don't even remember which one. Might have been, <laughs> might have been We Are Marshall. I don't know. But um, ultimately, like, he's a guy who can kind of just be plugged in wherever. I don't know that he has a lot of vision. But I think he can nail visuals, which in music videos is really important. Now, I haven't seen... I mean, I've seen the Charlie's Angels movies. I haven't seen his romantic comedies or his football movies. But, <laughs> Me neither. But um, I I got to believe that he is better at doing a kinetic, hard-hitting action movie than he is at doing a romantic comedy or a football film. Yeah, you don't get a sense, judging from this movie at least, or Charlie's Angels... That he's particularly strong at three-dimensional characters. Yeah, maybe not. That's, to me, like, maybe the biggest problem with this movie. And, like, we should say that, you know, the script was by John Brancato and Michael Ferris, who wrote Terminator 3, um, as well as some, you know, maybe lesser movies like Catwoman, The Net, um, Surrogates. Hey, I love The Net. <laughs> the Net's fun in a 1990s <laughs> way. And they also did a movie called The Game with Michael Douglas, which is actually really good. They also, I want to just note this... They also wrote a movie called Interceptor, which is a movie I watched at a birthday party in the 90s. It's a straight-to-video action movie starring uh, Andrew Divoff about a stolen stealth bomber. And I'll never forget it because we watched it at a birthday party the same night we watched Lethal Weapon 3. And, uh, you know, hey, Ian, if you're out there, thanks for throwing that birthday party. <laughs> you know, I think I've seen Interceptor. Yeah. I, don't, I don't remember anything about it, but I, 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 it rings a bell. But that's, but, that's neither either. We could spend this whole podcast <laughs> talking about movies I've seen. Right. But yeah, those two guys wrote the script. But because of the writer's strike, it kind of got tossed around a lot. There was some uncredited rewrites from Jonathan Nolan. Yeah, well, that that writer strike came right in the middle too of, yes. of filming, right? But yeah, Jonathan Nolan did some work on it. Paul Haggis, Sean Ryan, who was the the showrunner of the TV show The Shield, they all had their hands in this one, as well as probably a few other people. But those two guys, John Brancato and Michael Ferris, have the sole credits. You know, according to the film. Yeah, I actually read a um, an interview with McG. Uh, preparing for this podcast and he gave a lot of credit to uh, Jonathan Nolan actually he said uh, yeah he said something along the lines of you know I, I don't know what the rules are with the WGA but Jonathan Nolan deserves a lot of credit he's he was pretty instrumental in making the movie so take that for whatever it's worth yeah Christian Bale said the same thing I, he must have brought him in he must have right because that's the two of them worked together on the Dark Knight one year earlier I, I gotta believe it's more likely that Christian Bale is bringing him in than McGee's bringing him in. Right, and Christian Bale had quite a bit of power, I think, on this movie because he also had to be convinced to join the movie by McGee. He was not comfortable because he didn't think McGee had what it took to revitalize Terminator. He was actually right, but <laughs> but in terms of the actual film, what? I think that was made. I think McGee did have the skills. Like I think you know that McGee was definitely going in 
as an underdog, but I think when you look at what is on screen, at least in terms of its technical credentials, I think he did have what it took. I agree. Uh, and it, it also had a certain amount of vision, too, that I, I want to give credit where credit's due here. Um, I mean, you've already mentioned the giant robot. The, the I mean, there's all kinds of these dystopian things that are just so easy to be cliches that aren't really. He seems yeah. to do them fairly well. The um, All the various uh, endoskeletons running around with the Gatling guns are really scary. Yeah, they are, and at the same time, they're they're a real nod at previous Terminator movies without going into the without becoming a, a pastiche that we've we've maybe seen in the past in yeah. other Arnold movies. Um, Do you think this movie has more vision than Terminator Three? I think in some ways it does. I mean, Terminator Three, we we've gone over that movie before, and it added i think a lot to the terminator universe but we've already gone into a little bit about the problems that it had um it, it maybe didn't take itself seriously enough in some this cases. one corrected that <laughs> yeah it did and and i mean that's kind of what i wanted to get into a little bit which is that um you know part of the vision here is and what we were talking about before is how would you make a future war movie that wasn't just so dark and depressing. Right. And, I mean, the opening scene is uh, a guy on death row ultimately getting a lethal injection. Yeah. Uh, and the opening future war scene is, um, you know, an attack on a Skynet facility, which ends up being a human skin farm or organ farm yeah. in which everybody except Christian Bale is killed. And... And from there, things just get kind of darker. It's crazy that this movie was rated PG-13, whereas, like, Terminator 3 was rated uh, R. To me, like, this one feels more violent than Terminator 3, at least in terms of the horrors it's depicting on screen. And I know McGee asked the actors involved to read the book The Road to get a sense of the vibe he was going for. And, like, The Road is a super depressing book. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely get a sense of that. Or, I mean, if you haven't read the book, there's the Viggo Mortensen uh sure. vehicle which is actually pretty pretty similar um but some of the stuff of the, like the humans who are locked up and that kind of thing is pretty grim and pretty dark stuff yeah and you do get a sense of what mcg's going for because this movie is for at least a chunk of it something of a road movie of characters wandering through this dystopia encountering groups of you know survivors some are you know violent some are friends and there is that real desperation to it all. And it's really this kind of road trip to find John Connor, ultimately. Yeah, that's right. And it, it cuts back once in a while to the Resistance headquarters, which is on a, a giant submarine run by Michael Ironside. Uh, those parts of the movie I actually found a lot less intriguing yeah, than the part, parts that were out in the world. I know why they were there. They didn't want to just have John Connor, who's, you know, a street kid. I'm pretty sure when he, <laughs> when he shows up, in the in the future war and it says hey guys follow me right P people don't really take him that seriously you kind of need to uh make a bit of a name for yourself there john so you've got michael ironside who's always fantastic he felt kind of wasted in this though like i would he have did. loved to have seen him out in the field uh, he did i mean uh, i love michael ironside probably because he's in literally uh half of the movies ever made <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh well not literally but figuratively <laughs> metaphorically humorously the... michael ironside's the uh, star in uh, mcg's other romantic comedy <laughs> that's right 
Uh, <laughs> but he he's the he's the the general of the ill-fated resistance submarine. Yeah. <laughs> That was definitely one ill-fated submarine. <laughs> yeah, you could kind of see it coming because no one yeah. on the submarine was very nice. No. Uh, but those scenes weren't as compelling, but they didn't really linger there. You didn't feel like... Um, like they, I feel like a, another director could have spent more time on the submarine unnecessarily. Yeah. McG kind of established that, yeah, he, they're given orders. John Connor's given alternate orders. People are listening to John Connor. Now he's a leader. Great. That's that's why the submarine's there. Yeah, the John Connor material is not particularly compelling to me. I think the problem is, I think the character of John Connor may be the worst acting gig around. Like, it's just such a joyless role. You know what I mean? Like, I think Edward Furlong got to have way more fun because you get to be the young, naive you know, I don't know what my future is going to be, kid. But when you are grizzled war vet John Connor in the future war, boy, is it a depressing role. And I talked about that with Nick Stahl in Terminator 3. It's like this character is kind of just more of a vessel for fate. He's not someone who seems like a real human. It's kind of like playing Jesus to a certain degree, but less fun. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you get to have some optimism to your performance. Whereas, like... John Connor, even though he's a character who's fighting for optimism, he seems just so bleak and miserable all the time. I'll agree with you there. Uh, I think actually it's, in my mind, it's possibly the biggest problem with this movie is I, and it it pains me to say it because I love Christian Bale. I think he's a fantastic actor. He's probably the best actor we'll ever get as John Connor, right? I imagine so. I mean, he he is a you know a generational actor. Like he is a top of his game thespian. Right. And I think he was kind of horribly miscast here as John Connor. I think that having Christian Bale as John Connor really, in a lot of ways, drags this movie down because he's so serious and he embodies this grizzled, miserable, tortured war vet. Uh, so well that the movie, it just, as well-directed and as kinetic as it is, it just isn't a lot of fun. Yeah, it's like, I don't even know if he's giving a good performance. I almost wonder if Christian Bale would say, if you asked him now, that he just never had a good handle on the character, and so he just kind of went intense. Like, because he's whispering and, like, growling every line of this movie, but I also don't know how much is because... You know, the screenplay's in disarray. He doesn't have a good handle on this character. I don't know. Like, the behind the scenes, I, I would love to read a book on the making of Terminator Salvation. That is a book I know they'll never make. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I am curious because I don't think, especially having seen Christian Bale at this point in my life, in so many movies since this film, I have never seen him give as one note of performance as this. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I mean, I do have to wonder... Uh, <laughs> An ongoing theme in the Terminator movies generally is what separates humans from machines. And that theme is explicitly laid out in a number of places in this movie. It is pretty on the titanium nose. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the titanium nose of one Sam Worthington. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before I do that, I I mean, so I got to wonder, though, a little bit is... um, you know Sam Worthington as Marcus Wright. Obviously, he discovers midway through that he's a half 
machine, half man, uh, protocol, uh, not a protocol droid. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, R2-D2, where do we go now? <laughs> exactly. Oh no, we're stuck uh, in the desert, where yeah, do we go now? <laughs> a, a prototype infiltration bot. Uh, you know, and in a lot of ways, he's he's more human. He's uh, He discovers his humanity uh, through rescuing Kyle Reese and ultimately teaming up with uh, Moon Bloodgood as Blair Williams, a resistance fighter for a pseudo-romantic uh adventure a character that is introduced and then completely dropped <laughs> yeah I, I i got what they were going for though so i'm i'm wondering though as far as christian bale's performance i mean he's such a good uh actor and he's so compelling and so much of what he's done i wonder if he was basically told you know be a human who's suffered so much trauma in his life and has so much responsibility that he's he's basically become a machine or a bit, a bit robotic I think the issue is, too, is like, you know, McGee is saying, read the road. That's what I'm going for. And that's all well and good. But I question if that's ill-conceived from the start in the sense of you're going to open this $200 million blockbuster that is using the road as its sort of tonal inspiration. That does not scream mega hit to me. Like, it almost feels like just in terms of a box office smash, this thing was kind of doomed from the get-go. Yeah, if you if you're gonna go for a story that's really going to draw in the crowds, you probably want to go with Michael Crichton over Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, yeah, and you know I think the thing with the character of John Connor, and I'll get to Sam Worthington in a second, but um, this character I think works better as an icon in the distance, kind of like the John Connor we saw glimpses of in the Future War in the first uh, first two movies. I think this movie would have been maybe more interesting if we'd followed um, Anton Yelchin's Kyle Reese character, because Kyle Reese is a more emotive character, he's a more dynamic character, he's a character who has like human flaws and insecurities, he's someone who we can actually kind of get in the heart of, for a, a franchise that depends on characters with heart. Yeah, on that subject, what I'll say too is I had totally forgotten that Anton Yelchin was in this movie. At the time, he really wasn't a very well-known actor. Right. Uh, of, of course, he went on to play uh, Chekhov in the same month, actually in two thousand nine. Yeah, in this in the Star Trek uh, franchise reboot, mm -hmm. and um, and it, you know, obviously, unfortunately, uh, died. I think in a car crash. No, it was the car rolled down the hill and pinned him against a uh, against the wall. Yeah, it was really it, awful. Yeah, what a loss, eh? Like yeah. you, you watch this movie, and he brings so much to the character of Kyle Reese. Yeah, uh, you know what? A, what a shame. I would have loved to have seen Anton Yelchin kind of grow and and develop and I, I feel like he he would have been like a, one of those elder statesman actors at some point oh for sure he would have worked forever um yeah i mean i think he brings a lot to this movie and i really enjoy him i don't really like that the movie turns him more into a plot device because ultimately they set him up really well you know we have marcus right uh spending time with this character getting to know him before he just kind of disappears and becomes you know the quote-unquote damsel for everyone else to you know save at the end like, Kyle Reese is the MacGuffin that the other characters have to go save at the end, or unlock. And I would have preferred maybe a film that followed that character, because he is young, he's naive. What is it like for a young kid like him joining the Resistance? I think that movie may be more interesting, um, but it's one of those things that's easier to say in retrospect, because you look at what you got and go, maybe that would have been better, but this is the movie we got. But mm -hmm. I think the problem is for me, like, the Marcus Wright character... Um, 
Sam Worthington is an actor I think we all know at this point didn't exactly bring huge charisma to many roles, but at this point in time he was getting a lot of work because he's doing the Clash of the Titans remake, he's got Avatar of course, James Cameron helped him get this job, he recommended him to McGee, and I don't think Sam Worthington has what it takes to sell this character where it's someone who's dealing with am I human, am I a machine, I ask myself that question about Sam Worthington every day. <laughs> You know, I'm going to have to disagree with you, Cam. I, okay. actually, I actually thought Sam Worthington did a really great job okay. uh, in this movie. I thought he brought a lot to the character because uh, yeah, there's a lot going on with this character. He starts out as a death row prisoner that basically signs his, his life away to science. Yeah, to for... Helena Bonham Carter showing up for a couple scenes for some reason. Yeah, yeah, in a really weird, uh, non-consensual kissing scene yeah. uh, where he tells her, you know, I think she's got, it looks like she's got cancer or something like that. Yeah, and, and he says, now I know what death tastes like. Yeah, what a pickup line, Yeah, Kyle. no kidding. Um, Would that scene be in a movie now? I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> I, haven't given it, I haven't given it that much thought. A uh, little creepy, though, but he, he uh, you know, he's a death row prisoner, Uh Ultimately, he, you know, comes back to life and has to run around covered in mud, screaming like it's apocalypse now. Sure. And then discovers later on that he's half man, half machine. Who? And then after that, discovers that uh, he was, even though he feels human, he was actually programmed to bring John Connor back to Skynet headquarters in one of the most convoluted plot devices of the Terminator yeah, series. Yeah, But I think as far as... All of these things going on in this Marcus Wright character, uh, and I think Sam Worthington handled it pretty well. Yeah, I'm just not a fan of him in this movie, and I'm not a big fan of Sam Worthington, period, you're, it seems. You're more but... of a, a sabotage Sam Worthington <laughs> fan? He was definitely giving me a weird performance in that movie. Yeah, you know, go back and listen to our sabotage episode, because yeah. unless you already have, I can guarantee you haven't seen that movie. But, you know, the Marcus Wright character, I think, he's, the big, he's a problem because... The movie, you know, the ending that Ain't It Cool spoiled was that John Connor was going to die and that Marcus Wright was going to assume his identity from that point forward. And the journey of, you know, of Marcus Wright was that he was going to become the resistance leader and, you know, wearing John Connor's skin, essentially. And, you know, there's a big thing throughout the movie, like, you've got a strong heart and all that sort of thing. It's like... They're really on the nose about the strong heart thing, but ultimately they did last-minute rewrites to have him give a heart transplant to Christian Bale's character. Yeah, which is weird because last I checked, the the heart transplant is uh, is done by Kate Connor, who for whatever reasons it isn't played by um, Claire Danes. Claire Danes yeah. in this one. It was supposed uh, to be actually Charlotte Gainsbourg, and she had to drop out. Okay, but it's played by uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, Ron Howard's daughter. Yep. Uh, and last I, last I checked, I could be wrong on this, but in Terminator 3, she was a vet. She definitely was not a heart surgeon. Well, you know, after a future war, you gotta pick up other skills. So is this is this a retconning, or has she just, um, you know, dusted up on her uh, heart surgery books? She must have dusted up, right? <laughs> in the, like, decade plus after the events of Terminator 3? So anyway, so she pulls out... Sam Worthington's heart, which is one of the only human parts remaining except for, you know, part of his brain, I think. Right. Uh, and he he offers it up to John Connor so that he can go on and lead the resistance in the future. Right. Which really gives a lot of mixed messages after the movie spent so much time 
uh, focusing on how important it is to stay alive and how important it is for people to be human. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, Sam Worthington has redeemed himself as a human, albeit in a machine skeleton. And he's just, well, I don't need to stay alive. You can have my heart, John. He makes that decision very easily. And you can you can smell the rewrites coming off that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just, we were talking about how convoluted that was. That scene where he goes and plugs into Skynet in their headquarters is so ridiculous. Yeah. I that th- is the biggest info dump I think I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> I, th- I think I think we should hold off on that for a sec. Because okay. while, we're, while we're on the actors... I just I don't know maybe maybe you know Cam I, I tried to find some information on it, um, but why didn't you get Nick Stahl and Claire Danes back to play these roles in this movie? I just think at this point they you know this movie is well I guess it's only six years after Terminator Three. I just don't think they had any interest in bringing them back. I don't think that movie was the mega hit they wanted it to be, and they were looking at this as sort of a bit of a fresh start. Maybe. And plus, with Christian Bale as the lead, they obviously wanted someone who had some star power. Nick Stahl did not have star power at this point. And I think he may have actually had some personal issues, too, at this point. Yeah, I guess that that's probably true. But how about, how about Claire Danes? Maybe Claire Danes was busy. Yeah, she was busy. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, do you think this movie would have been better or worse with, with uh, the original actors playing uh, these characters? Um, well, you know what? Like, the character of Kate is so sidelined, it wouldn't really matter that much. Um, Nick Stahl versus Christian Bale? Uh, I mean, you know, with a role that's written like this, where you don't have a lot of opportunity to show any sort of range of emotions, uh, you're just basically angry, frustrated, or pissed. <laughs> um, I don't know that like, Nick Stahl is that appealing. I think Christian Bale was probably a pretty good trade-up. Yeah, probably. I mean... Yeah, if you'd had, uh, you know, the same, you know, Claire Danes character showing up here, I think you'd feel a little bit robbed when she's just basically a background character. Probably. It's a shame she didn't have more to do. She kind of showed up near the end in a helicopter. And... But that's the weird thing about this movie to me is that, like, you don't have a lot of characters at all, but the ones you do have are mostly all sidelined. <laughs> it's really just like the John Connor and Marcus Wright show. Like, all the rest of them maybe get, you know, a bunch to do in one act of the movie, and then they vanish for a chunk of it, and it's like, okay, well, I guess that's that. It's very strange. Very strange structure to this movie. Yeah, now that you mention it, that's true. There was the um, female leader of the gang that was in the uh, rundown 7-Eleven gas station. Right, yeah, yeah, that's Jane Alexander, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she shows up, they kind of establish her as a kindly old woman, and then she's gone. Yeah. Yeah, do you even really see her at the escape sequence at the end? Uh, yeah, you see her taking um, the uh, mute child who's okay. who's hanging out with uh, Kyle Reese right, right. Uh, under her wing. Right, yeah. Played by Jada Grace, of course. Yeah, or Jadag Race. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really sure how you would pronounce that. One of the most head-scratching performances in the movie is Common showing up as like John Connor's lieutenant or something. And, like, this character has nothing to do. Oh, he yells a lot. He yells a lot. Whatever. Why cast Common? He's pretty angry at Sam Worthington. Yeah. But, like, to me, this movie is just, like, these two guys. They spend most of the movie apart from one another. They aren't even together very much. So you don't get that much of a bond. You get Sam Worthington showing up, saving Christian Bale from robot eels, and then going off on his own way, and then showing up at the end to save the day. It's like, you know... Maybe if you'd had a relationship between these two, we would have that human story that this franchise depends on. 
as opposed to just two guys who are really quiet internal characters just kind of wandering a wasteland. Possibly. It's a shame that they didn't spend more time with Moon Bloodgood. Right. Because she adds, I think, a real human element to the story. I think originally there was supposed to be some kind of a, an actual love scene between Blair Williams, her character, and Marcus Wright, but they uh, they cut that out in order to get the PG-13 rating. Right, yeah. And likewise, like you already mentioned, it would have been nice to see a little bit more of a development in the relationship between Kyle Reese and somebody. Uh, either Marcus Wright or John Connor. I mean, ultimately, that for me is the biggest frustration of this movie, is that like, I look at the world building in the movie, and I don't have any problems with it whatsoever. And we've talked about, you know, movies that build worlds that don't make sense. Yeah, I actually, I thought this movie did a great job of building on the world that already existed without it being just in your face. Like, we saw the things that we wanted to see. Yeah. We saw the early model T-600 with its weird rubber skin that they mentioned. Yep, the hunter it, killers, of course. We saw the hunter killers. We've already talked about that big robot. I thought the... Um, the hydro bots or whatever they were called. Yep. Uh, in fact, the scene where John Connor is picking off the hydro bots under that are coming at him underwater. Yeah. Um, I thought that was uh, that was great. It reminded me a little bit of Screamers, if you remember that movie. Oh, I remember Screamers with Peter Weller, nineteen ninety five. Yeah, but um, I mean, it reminded me pretty much of uh, any movie that has a subterranean or underwater uh, adversary. Yeah. And yeah. someone. With backing away with a gun picking them off yeah but yeah all these things i mean made for a really compelling world but was it all for naught that's the problem with this movie is like let's kind of move into that last section because i referenced the info dump but it all kind of comes to a head um the powers that be michael ironside and his people want to bomb the um the cyberdyne uh headquarters where all skynet is and uh Ultimately, that's a good idea. Sure, it's a good idea, but they have a bunch of human prisoners there, including Kyle Reese, who's obviously the key to the future. So John Connor's like, hey, maybe it's a bad idea. Exactly. And John Connor goes out on a radio, talks to a dozen people, and they agree as well. <laughs> they only showed a dozen people. You yeah. know, you know that broadcast was going everywhere. Sure. But they agree, you know, they side with John Connor, and so when Michael Ironside calls fire, they don't. So John Connor goes in on his own to help free the people. I don't know why he goes alone necessarily, but uh, sure, I'll go with it. Marcus Wright is already going in there anyway. He's been drawn back by his programming and plugged into Skynet and gets the greatest load of exposition ever, where basically Skynet explains its entire plan. All the plot elements we've been following up until this point have been irrelevant. Skynet played by Helena Bottom Carter inexplicably. Right. But we find out a lot of this movie has been about John Connor trying to figure out the signals that shared between these various Terminators and Skynet. So that if they jam the signal, that'll stop Skynet. We spent like an hour plus on this signal drama with John Connor trying to crack it. We find out here that it's actually all a trap to draw John Connor to Skynet. Which is one of those convoluted villain plots that you're like, you know, I'm not sure it would have all worked out like this. Yeah, when you think about it, if Kyle Reese is the key to the future, why not just not even bother drawing John Connor in? They want to kill John Connor too, though. Sure, but why not just, if they've got Kyle Reese, they've taken him to the the processing plant, the robot concentration camp here. Right. Um... 
and they've identified Kyle Reese. Uh, one of the robot sentries in there has uh, identified him. He's target number one. Yeah, and so, I mean, as far as Marcus Wright and John Connor know, they wouldn't know the difference between whether Kyle Reese was alive or dead. Right. So why not just pull him out, identify him, and... Um, and you know robot kill him hunter kill him right right um and then have john connor show up anyways yeah i don't know i don't know or or for that matter um if the goal is to kill john connor you, you know when marcus wright is originally captured after that landmine gets gets attached to his body uh everyone there is saying you know you were you were sent here to kill all of us you were sent here to kill specifically john connor it seems like if you're going to come up with an assassination plan why not just have that actually be the case? Right. Where you capture Kyle Reese and then have this um, sympathetic humanish kind of robot. Mm-hmm. You know, if it hadn't been for that mine, probably would have gotten in there and probably would have gotten an audience with John Connor. Yeah. Why not just have him him do the deed? He gets in there, the screen goes red, and uh, see you later, John. I think there's a couple problems with Skynet's plan here. Just a couple. Number one <laughs> is that, like, we've seen throughout the movie... That John Connor's on the front lines. He's the guy who's in a chopper going into these battle scenarios a lot. And so, like, why don't just draw him out and have a massive army waiting for him? Because he often escapes. He's the only one who escapes the introduction of the movie. Like, just put a little extra effort in. But second of all, let's just assume they don't want to go that route because, I don't know, resources or something. If you're going to draw him, using the Marcus Wright character, to your headquarters... Have more than three Terminators there. That's a good point. <laughs> Although, what I will say, if you are going to have a Terminator there, why not have it look like Arnold Schwarzenegger? There, oh, there's the segue. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of that scene? It would be a it would be a hell of a shame to not talk about that on an Arnie Geddon podcast, wouldn't it? But obviously, Arnold was only playing half. Of this particular T-800, he was playing the facial half, not necessarily the body half. Right, yes. He did some facial uh, technology for the film. Uh, he was in the governor role at this point, so he just they, I think he just took a day to come down and do this. But um, his body double's name was uh, Roland Kickinger, um, or maybe Kickinger? I don't know, either one. But he played Arnold in the TV movie uh, See Arnold Run. But yes, he comes out... He's a huge guy, and we see Arnold's face on it. The Terminator score kicks in. I want to say Danny Elfman did the score on this one. I think this is a way better score than Terminator 3. Um, But, um, yeah, we see that Terminator. And I remember in the theater, people were excited. Um, You know, we get a fight. I don't know that it pays off the huge build-up and reveal, but it's fine. Well, at this point, having that kind of facial mapping on on something... It's not flawless. It, it wasn't like it was a huge deal, but it was definitely studio magic at this point. Definitely, yeah. Right, like it, it was, like you're like, whoa, that actually looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But it isn't flawless. I, I actually thought that the biggest problem with it is that the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator face, looks really angry. Yeah, no, that's very accurate. And the the Terminator that we, we know from Terminator 1 through 3... Wouldn't have any expression on his face. Right. Yeah, that is true. I think they want to make him look scary. And, you know, the the face, they were dealing with limitations at this point in time. You know, we're only a few years, I guess we're maybe, I guess, seven or eight years removed from the Scorpion King. (laughs) (laughs) 
with Dwayne Johnson's face on that. The less said about that, the better. But, you know, we're still not quite where we are now, where now they can do it often pretty seamlessly. Um, you don't even have to be alive to be an actor these days. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know what? I think there's only one shot of it where it looks weird, and it looks a little plasticky when it's a real close-up and he turns his face. But when it's him being revealed, it looks fine. When it's kind of quick shots where he's not doing a lot of facial movement, it looks fine. It's just when there's that one shot where he turns his head. Yeah. Ultimately, it's short-lived because the Terminator's skin catches on fire conveniently in pretty short order. Yep. And we're reduced once again to the uh, the T-800. Yes. And uh, then, of course, we get the famous molten metal covering it. And then, of course, there's always that pipe just above head that if you shoot it, it'll cool it down quickly. Yeah, I, it's probably a good time to bring up, uh, what did you think about all the obvious homages to the um, to the movie's past in here? I mean, there's the obvious ones where Kyle Reese has the line, come with me if you want to live. And John also the, Connor says, I'll be back. Yeah, but more there, there's a bunch of scenes, especially in this fight in Skynet HQ, that were almost shot for shot or at least angle-for-angle angle remakes of shots from these previous movies. There's a, a scene where uh, Christian Bale has the break-action shotgun right. that he's using that's very similar to the one Linda Hamilton was using on the T-1000. Right. There's the scene where Christian Bale throws himself over the railing that looks a lot like what Kyle Reese did in, in The Terminator. And there's... there's I, I counted probably a dozen of these types of scenes in this movie. Um, for me... I thought they were pretty effective. They weren't jarring, but what did you think? Um, yeah, I think a lot of them work their way in fine into the DNA of the movie without being too jarring. There's also a moment earlier in the movie, actually, you didn't mention, but that's when um, Marcus Wright uses a knife to pin a guy down um, through the shoulder. Right. Which, of course, Schwarzenegger did in Terminator 2 at the start in the Viker bar. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they didn't phase me too much, but... I I also can't say that this finale in this spark and fire warehouse was anywhere near as good as the Terminator 1 or Terminator 2 finales. No, I'll, I'll agree with that. Uh, I don't even know if it was as as good as the Terminator 3 yeah. uh, f- finale. Although that, that obviously was a little bit different. Um, the, the Terminatrix I wasn't a huge fan of. Right. Uh, played by Christina Loken. Uh, where you have the two robots. Yeah throwing each other around well do you remember the death was like really just abrupt of schwarzenegger's character right yeah what i will say they did pretty well here and then that they did throughout this movie is not just the um the broader action you already mentioned like the chopper tracking shots and right. and like the hunter killer scenes and that kind of thing but i thought some of the um the fist fighting action mm-hmm. was hard hitting and convincing and no more so i thought than in this uh final battle in the skynet headquarters i would have liked a few more i guess memorable moments within the fight because there's so many in the other terminator films but i think it's totally fine like i don't think it's a bad scene at all and you know i do kind of like that moment at the end where the terminator's claw like cuts the scar in john connor's face that we of course see in the flashbacks right yeah no i thought that was great you know like there's enough there that i can enjoy it i'm not being pulled out of the movie it just doesn't have the impact of the James Cameron movies, but I guess asking anyone to aspire to James Cameron action is maybe a tall order? I'll say so. I was kind of bummed, though, to see the fuel cells from Terminator 3 back, because that was such a stupid addition. Well, you know, I figured... 
I agree with you. It wasn't my favorite addition to the franchise, but since they were there and since they were established, I mean, why not? Why not make use of them and why not have them as a plot device? I guess I blame T three for that more so than uh, Salvation. <laughs> yeah, although what I will say is, uh, if you are going to set off a uh, nuclear bomb or the equivalent thereof uh, out of a helicopter. You know, you should probably try and be a little bit farther away than in the direct blast radius of it. I would agree with that. Now, ultimately, this movie just kind of has this abrupt ending where John Connor gets his heart, and there's a voiceover as choppers fly off that the battle's going to rage on until they win. How do you feel about this movie now, you know, in the sense of when you saw it in 2009 and you saw this ending, you had that sense of, well, I wonder what the next one's going to be. You know now there is no next one. So how do you feel about this movie? Does it feel like without that continuation, it's sort of a movie that doesn't need to exist anymore? Kind of like, uh, you know, there's a random example, but like I remember that movie, The Golden Compass, ends, <laughs> ends on a cliffhanger, and then there's no follow-up. And so you have this movie that ends on a cliffhanger, and you're like, whatever. I don't think so. I think every Terminator movie pretty much has ended similarly. Which, uh, you think of Terminator 2, or even Terminator 3 with John Connor on the radio. Yeah. Um, who's in charge? Well, right. I am. Uh, and you always wonder, there's something more to come. But the, I think the idea behind the Terminator franchise, generally, is that there is such a thing as fate. Right. But you should always be fighting against it. <laughs> I have to imagine, though, if you know we got the part 2 or part 3, they would have started to introduce the time travel elements. That would, of course, you know, ultimately connected to the original films. I got to believe that. But even even though the ending of this movie is maybe ostensibly kind of a sequel setup, uh, I don't think it really loses anything. I think if they ended it with, you know, Christian Bale throwing his hands in the air and saying, hooray, all the robots are dead. <laughs> the humans win. Right. Um, cheeseburgers for everyone. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I, th- I don't think that would have necessarily have been a better ending. Fair enough. Okay, so let's just wrap up Terminator Salvation. Tony, is this going to be a Terminator movie you revisit now going forward? Has it changed in your mind in terms of how important you see it in the overall Terminator mythology? I think I will revisit it again, actually. Uh, again, I still haven't seen Terminator Genesis. I, I can't wait. That we I think we've now wrapped up all of the Terminator movies. I've been saving myself on this podcast to do Terminator Genesis. So I I can't speak to the entire mythology, but I think I might even watch this movie again before, uh, before dark fate comes out just to, just to have it really fresh in my mind about what it is that they've done in the past and what it is they're going to do differently. Uh, I think this movie suffers from a bit of an unfortunate miscasting of Christian Bale as John Connor. Uh, It could do with, not taking itself quite so seriously throughout and it has uh, a bit of a muddled and troublesome third act but on the whole i think the movie is is definitely enjoyable it's 10 years now since this movie's been released and uh the action at least holds up really well and i think that the parts of it that are there that work fit really well into the terminator mythology of course it's all gonna be retconned and eliminated in the new movie but um i think that it's uh, a pretty good movie uh ultimately how about you yeah i think it's an interesting misfire and when i say misfire i mean in the sense of this was supposed to be a franchise you know restarter that didn't really work um but i think it's interesting it doesn't feel like 
kind of a cynical retread. It felt like they were trying to do something different with this franchise and property, and it just didn't quite work. And I think ultimately, you know, as I said, it comes down to the human story. The human story may seem pretty slight stuff when you look at the Cameron ones. It's not like it was a big, ambitious human story, but it was a simple one that had a certain sophistication to it that people really latched onto. And I think that is far more important than maybe the people making this movie realized. And I think if they brought a little more of that to this movie, you might have had something like, say, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes or War for the Planet of the Apes, those later apes movies that were really fantastic and had, you know, a similar dystopian setting. Or even something like the Steven Spielberg War of the Worlds, which I think is a really terrific movie as well. Like, those movies are super bleak, but there's something to latch onto. There is that sense of hope and characters that really do pop off the screen. Whereas this one doesn't have those, and so I definitely could see myself re-watching it just to kind of visit this world again and admire what Stan Winston was doing, what all the effects people were doing, and some of the action that McGee was staging. I think there's a lot to be impressed by here. It's just that it's just missing that, you know, je ne sais quoi that is what makes Terminator Terminator or Terminator 2 Terminator 2 mm-hmm. or, you know, any great movie or a really good movie, you know, what it is. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I think that wraps up Terminator Salvation. What are we doing next time? Well, I feel like we've been away from actual honest-to-goodness Schwarzenegger starring vehicles for a little bit here, Cam. So we're going to go back to the source and... Uh... At least watch one that people like, unlike Collateral Damage. <laughs> Yeah, I guess collateral damage technically counts as a Schwarzenegger starring vehicle. Um, but we're going to take it uh, a little bit farther back than that and go back to 1990s Kindergarten Cop. The the lighter side of Arnold is a lovable substitute teacher. Yeah, it's been a little while since we did a comedy. We did Jingle All the Way Around Christmas and we did Twins before that sometime. So I'm looking forward to maybe an Arnold comedy that makes me laugh. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Arnold maybe doing something a little bit more classic uh i think we've been spending a lot of time in late stage arnold and uh and special featurettes here of course i'm looking forward to this one as well because my memories of kindergarten cop are similar to my memories of on twins yeah so uh, uh, let's see if those uh, dreams are crushed once again i have a lot of fond memories uh we'll see if this hold up once <laughs> <Yeah>. we're done <laughs> okay so you can of course track us at Pod on twitter or email us at artigenpod at gmail.com. Tony, how can they get hold of you? You can find me, Tony G, at artigeddon.com. That's Tony like the name, G like the letter. You can also go direct to our website, www.artigeddon.com, should you find the streaming services not <laughs> to your liking. <laughs> you can, of course, find me on Twitter at Cam V as in violently headbanging to Guns N' Roses, Smith. Yeah, if you didn't catch that reference, the song from Terminator 2 is uh, played to distract the machines by John Connor in Salvation. Correct. Yeah. Okay, so we'll be back with Kindergarten Cop. Hey!